0: Okay, brothers and sisters, I invite you to find your seats and then take out your Bibles. I invite you to turn to the book of Psalms and turn to the end of the book of Psalms to Psalm 139. Psalm one thirty-nine. Psalm one hundred and thirty-nine. Um Um, I I asked for your prayers this morning. It's been kind of a hectic or chaotic morning. um, And it's but it's also been a a kind of a heavy week for me um, mentally in preparation for this week. We had finished our sermon series uh, and then I did a teaching on baptism. Paul taught last week and um, and then like we have the baptism thing next week. So just as a reminder, we're not meeting here next week. We're meeting uh, and the address is in the handout. And it will be in the email. But our church service will be the baptism service, the special baptism celebration service. So I had like one week, uh, no sermon series, no message planned. Coming to, uh, you know, last Sunday night, uh, Monday, uh, had a couple of other options. Didn't have one planned. And then I saw what was happening and unfolding uh, all across the world, it seems. Um, Chaos and Um, tyranny in Australia maybe maybe some of you are like I don't watch the news or anything and see anything that goes on Um, but some really crazy scenes Um, the devastation of the uh, earthquake in Haiti is, is really bad but then last week seeing what was unfolding in Afghanistan and the just evil just evil just evil in the world, um, wickedness, both by this terrorist Islamic organization and the wickedness of our own administration. I'm just, just going to say this. And so I was really just troubled by, by watching the scenes of what is happening. And it's still happening, just the absolute brutality um, The execution of people who helped the United States over the last 20 years, like interpreters, guides, people willing to cling to an aircraft taking off in order to escape the brutality that was coming their way. I mean, just what goes through your mind? Unless you've never seen an airplane before in your life, what would cause you to do that? Unless you had a really strong understanding of what was coming. And reports now on multiple fronts that despite despite the slickness of the presentation of the Taliban leaders, they're going door to door, finding Christians and executing Christians in the streets. And the other just incompetence of just the entire catastrophe that's that's happening. It's just kind of really overwhelming. And so, and then I think here's just a couple of my other thoughts from this week. And don't forget what's happening here inside of our borders as well. The indoctrination of racism in our public schools through critical race theory. Racism being codified in the training of corporations through diversity, equity, and inclusion resegregation I never would have thought a kid from the 70s who heard about what happened in the 60s would hear now in the 2020s see the push to go back to that just evil the sexual revolution the sexual confusion that's happening I can't even keep track of all of the different categories that are being invented every day And not to speak of the the horrific practice of abortion that's been legalized in our country for so long, which is horrific enough, and now the push to make that health care and for us to pay for it. This isn't political, by the way. This is pointing out just evil that's being committed in the world today. And I haven't even gotten to the the discrimination against people whose consciences are like, I'm just not sure I want to take this vaccine. Denying health care. Doctor's appointments being canceled if you don't meet that status. We went from free donuts if you get one a few months ago to now you have to lose your job. That's evil. That's evil. That's wickedness. Utter wickedness. And they all have something in common. It's all a rebellion against God and his created order. It's all a rebellion against God and his righteous law. So I was like, what what scripture should I turn to? And I just happened upon Psalm 139. And so allow me to read Psalm 139. And then I'll give you an outline of where we're going uh, today. Because I think in times like this, the Psalms are very helpful for helping us to understand and respond to the wicked situations that we experience in the world. Psalm 139. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot contain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully And wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. Even as yet there was none of them how precious to me are your thoughts o god how vast is the sum of them if i would count them they are more than the sand i awake and i am still with you o oh, that you would slay the wicked o god o oh, men of blood depart from me they speak against you with malicious intent your enemies take your name in vain in the way everlasting. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. God, as we now reflect on what your servant David wrote here, help us. Help us to not only know David's heart here, help us to know yours. Bring our hearts and souls in in alignment with yours. That we may know rightly how to pray. And we ask this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people send, amen and amen. Let me survey through this book and there's, it's actually broken up or this, this chapter, uh, this Psalm, it's actually broken up into four equal, uh, stanzas of six verses each. The ESV has different paragraph breakings here, but it follows neatly into four, but I have six points in our exposition of it. Um, but, uh, Let me kind of guide you here to get to um, through this psalm to the end here of uh, where David ends up in this psalm. Okay, because in order where where we get to the point where David ends up in the psalm, we kind of need to know how the other parts connect to it. So first, let me point out verses one through six or the first little stanza there is God's omniscience. David is focusing on God's omniscience. God, the all-seeing and all-knowing. Okay, you can put that in your handout. God's omniscience, God all-seeing and all-knowing. So uh, this word omni means all. It's a Latin word for all. And then the, the science word there at the end, the scientia, means knowledge. Because that's what science is supposed to be, the acquisition of knowledge. Okay? <laughs> Up until recent. Um, So the acquisition of knowledge. And so we'll get to how knowledge is acquired for humans here in in a moment. But I want you to notice uh, something here in these opening verses. Notice how all of these verbs that are associated with with the Lord God Yahweh in these verses are expressing, are in the perfect tense in Hebrew. And what that means is that it's expressing um, uh, unvaried fixed habit, one commentator says an unvaried or fixed habit. So these 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 descriptions of the Lord God here are like fixed. Think of it as like a point. It's not evolving or changing. These are fixed. So searched and known, discerned, you search out, acquainted with, you know it all together. Okay? So notice the the Fixedness and invariability of God's knowledge here. And then notice the comprehensiveness of it as it relates to David. You know, the the pairings of things, up or down. If I'm up or down, you know. If I'm walking, you know. If I'm lying, you know. The Lord God has full knowledge of all David's actions. Look at verse 2 and 3. You know when I sit and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are equated with all my ways. So he knows his actions and he knows his thoughts. You know my thoughts from afar. Verse four, even before the word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. David just concludes with this meditation on God's omniscience, his all knowingness and his all seeingness with. Uh, Think of the, the gift of the guy blowing the mind blowing gifts. You know, you know, what I'm talking about where the guy's like, Whoa. that's David. Verse six, uh, verse uh, six. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Time out. I, I have to tap out thinking about how it is that, you know, everything. It is high. I cannot even contain it. This is. This is a meditation on God's knowledge of events. And not just events, not just knowledge of what he does, but knowledge of everything. And David says, you know, everything about me. Now, just expand this out exponentially to the knowledge that he has about everything. Let me read to you a quote from one of my favorite theologians. Mostly because I like saying his name. Wilhelmus Abrakel. (laughs) I won't make you say it. Wilhelmus Abrakel. He has a a four-volume systematic theology. And this is an old dead guy. I mean, like hundreds of years dead. Which are the best kind? And he says, not that the best, that being dead, but the best kind of theologians, (laughs) right? He says this on God's omniscience. He goes, man acquires knowledge by means of deliberation and rational deduction deducing and drawing conclusions by viewing one fact in reference to another. An in initial knowledge concerning an object is acquired by way of sensible observations, which are made regarding physical objects through the agency of the five senses, and by means of intellectual observations, which are made through the agency of one's intellect regarding matters about which man reasons. The knowledge of God, so he's basically saying this is how man acquires information. The knowledge of the of God, on the contrary, neither has its origin in the creature, nor does it flow from the creature to God. Rather, okay, he's talking about what God knows. Rather, it flows from God Himself to the creature. God does not become acquainted with things after the fact by virtue of their existence and function i'll say that one again god does not become acquainted with things after the fact by virtue of their existence and function rather he knows matters in advance so that they will exist and function according to his decree god does not decree his workmanship by considering cause and effect he does not acquire his knowledge concerning his creature through the process of research and rational deduction. So in other words, he doesn't do knowledge the way we do knowledge. Rather, he knows them since he has decreed that they should exist and operate. His cognizance of everything is full and instantaneous in consequence of who he is. He views everything simultaneously and each matter in particular. Okay. This pertains even to the minutest detail of its its existence. This is what David is realizing here. One of my professors put it uh, this way. God is not in the knowledge acquisition business because he's God. Vilhelmus Obraco continues. Beyond this, we cannot speculate about the mode of God's knowledge. And he quotes David here. We must confess such knowledge is too wonderful for me. So this is how David begins this psalm on God's omniscience. He's all seeing and all knowing. He needs to just meditate on the fact that God knows everything. Even the particular details of his life. Friends, we need to, first and foremost today, we need to really grasp this today. God knows everything, including the specific details of your life. He knows. He knows. David moves from God's omniscience to another omni. To his omnipresence. His omnipresence. Okay, Again, the omni meaning all and then presentia is the Latin word, which we need to have presence. It's just presence. It means, what, it means what it means. God is everywhere present. He's the everywhere present God. And notice the, uh, in, in these verses, verses 7 through 12, I want you to notice a couple of rhetorical devices here, uh, what are called merisms, you know? so it's, it's, um, which is a combination of two contrasting parts to basically say the whole thing, everything. So, you know, when we say something like, you know, man, we worked day and night on a project. Well, did you literally work day and night? 20? Or is it the way of saying like this is we worked at all hours. Here's merisms of, of God's present presence. OK, verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? The answer here is obviously there's nowhere. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Notice the contrast. The merism. Heaven and then Sheol is the grave. It's, It's in the earth. It's like wherever I would go to the highest of heavens, you're there. And if I go down to the depths of the earth, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. This is basically like saying God is present from east to west. Because the wings of the morning is the east where the sun would rise. And then from David's perspective on the far eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, looking west, all you see is the sea. So to the other. So he's basically saying from from where the dawn of the sun comes up all the way till across the sea that you cannot even see beyond the horizon. If I go to those places, even there, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. And that even this transcends even the darkest times or places or periods, night or day. And also, um, there is probably some moral uh, imagery here between light and darkness as well. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day for darkness is as light with you. God will see. He sees through it. Whatever darkness you might be going through. Because he's present everywhere. So you have the omniscience of God and now the omnipresence of God. You have God, the all seeing and the God, all knowing and the God, the everywhere present. And now we get to the third stanza of the four. And that is another omni here. Omni omnipotent. Omnipotent or potentia. And this is God, the almighty or all-powerful. That's what omnipotent means. Omnipotent means all-powerful. So the almighty and then its creator and sustainer of all things. The almighty creator and sustainer of all things. We know that David has reflected on God as creator uh, several times where he's stopped and he's paused and he's meditated on the vastness of creation. If you want to, turn to Psalm 8. This is also a psalm of David. And he begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Notice what he says in verse 3. When I look at your heavens. Okay. I mean, you got a chance to go camping this summer. And it was a clear beautiful night and you got to see all the stars right and and that was probably with some light pollution imagine da- being in david's day with like zero light pollution and up at 3,000 3,500 feet um, in jerusalem and imagine he's just laying there looking up at the stars and he goes when i look at your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and then he goes, man, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Notice how David is in Psalm eighty; he's looking at the macro picture of creation, and he's looking at the insignificance of man. Here he's kind of doing this a similar thing, but in reverse. He goes micro. Verse thirteen. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, structure, body, skeletal system. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that you have formed for me. When as yet there was none. Notice the the micro. David's thinking about how his inward parts were formed. Even into his mother's womb. And this, in verse 16, my unformed substance. Being, being pro-life is not just a political thing. This is one of the clearest passages in the scriptures that speaks about the dignity of human beings, even in the womb. And God sees and knows that. I was, as I was thinking about this and how... Um, how this was hidden, and it was being made in secret. Um, moms, moms in here. I, how do I ask this? <laughs> um, when, when you first discovered that you were with child, how far along were you? Unless you guys are some really good people like, ooh, I know, now it happened. Six, eight, Six, eight weeks, several weeks, Right? god knew god knows isn't that mind-blowing there's no stronger connection than i could think of in a human plane in earth between a a mother and a child and even that extends even into the womb and even then there's a period of time where you may not even know about it but god does he knows he knows that life in that womb unformed substance david says and you were there And so David is marveling at the fact that God is omniscient. He's all knowing of all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He is all powerful. He's all seeing, all knowing, everywhere present, almighty creator and sustainer of all things. And then uh, this is actually part of the third stanza. But in verses 17 and 18, he's actually kind of tying this all together with this uh, concluding meditation or contemplation. Verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. It's just overwhelming. Overwhelming. Isn't this a beautiful psalm? Beautiful psalm on the attributes of of who God is. David is saying, "This this is my God. This is my God. But the mood shifts quite a bit in these next verses. And let me say, there's no mistake on like the Bible people from days past as they were putting in chapter divisions and verse divisions. Verses 19 through 22 uh, are not a mistake. There's There's no documentary evidence that's like, ah, these verses weren't really there. These were there. This change of tone from everything about the attributes of who God is to verses 19 and 22 is not a mistake. David turns from, this is my God, to now going, this is how the world is. And it's a consuming indignation. A consuming indignation. Against the evil and wickedness that seems as omnipresent and as ever-present as God is. You guys identify with this? Verse 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Then again, speaking to God, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And then this verse. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, if there was an attribute that could be attributed in this last stanza, it would be God's holiness because David is enraged at the violation of God's holiness here. This is getting into uh, what is called imprecatory prayers. Let me spell it for you there. Imprecatory prayers. What's an imprecatory prayer? It's a spoken curse, basically. It's, it's a calling down of a curse on persons. Now, some of you might go, wait a second. There, there's, there's imprecatory prayers in the Bible. There's, there's actually calling down of curses on people in the Bible. The answer to that is, yes, there is. It's an appeal. There are appeals to God to pour out his divine curses On persons or people namely the wicked or the enemies of God the Psalms the Psalms are filled with these I believe in the handout I printed off there for you a sampling there's a sampling of the verses there if you would like to go through and read some of those um, I encourage you to do so and I don't think it's a mystery to say that that uh, or I don't think it's too strong to say, I think there's a lot of Christians who just wish these verses weren't there. I think there's Christians who say, man, I just wish those those don't belong in the Bible. One, one commentator goes, it seems to be breaking the devotional flow. <laughs> like, <laughs> really? <laughs> Some, are, some people might be resigned to say, well, they're there, so we have to deal with them, and then they kind of explain them the way. So, so here's, here's what I want uh, us to do. Here we're going to do in a second. I'm going to read some examples of some other um, imprecatory um, prayers from the Psalms themselves, just to give you an idea. And then I want to ask the question, how do we connect all this together? Okay? So we just read Psalm 139. Let me go back. Here's Psalm 5. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Here's a personal favorite. Psalm 10, verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. How many are going, that's in the Bible? Psalm 35. Let them, these wicked enemies, be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Psalm 58, verse 6 and 7. Another personal favorite. Oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear the fangs out of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Psalm 69, verses 23 through 26. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually, continuously, continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let their your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those who you have wounded. The next two verses there. Add to them the punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Or here, Psalm 109. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food Far from the ruins they inhabit. And there's more and more. Let me give last one, Psalm 140, the next song. As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. How how are we to deal with these verses? How do we connect verses 19 through 22 with everything that's come before, verses 1 through 18? David doesn't seem to reveal anything unusual about this change of tone. It's, this is really something only kind of modern people do. How many times have you heard, Well, evil exists in the world. Well, therefore, I don't believe in God. Uh, David doesn't ever entertain that sort of thinking at all. In fact, David's indignation in these verses are not in spite of verses 1 through 18. It's because of verses 1 through 18. It's because God is all-knowing. God is everywhere present. God is the almighty creator of every single person and sustainer of everything. That means he is the righteous ruler of all things. And all of his people are made in his image. Being in the image of God means being a moral being. Being in the image of God means being obligated to follow what God's righteous law is. God's creatures are required to identify with his cause. And this is what David is so upset about. David is reflecting on the omniscience, the presence, the omnipotence of God. And then he looks and sees all the evil in the world. And he says, God, do something about it. So should Christians pray these imprecatory prayers? Just to to take a few moments to think about this here a little bit. Should Should Jesus or should Christians pray these? After all, here's a couple of things to keep in mind. Doesn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Right. And didn't Jesus rebuke some of his disciples as they were traveling around from village to village and they got to one of the villages in Samaria and they rejected Jesus and the disciples and kicked them out. And then James and John said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus rebukes them for that. Right. Or what about Paul, who in Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. So are Christians not to pray these imprecatory prayers? My answer is, hold on a second here. All of those are true. But these words in the Psalms are true too. These are given by God. And that David's words here, I believe, are very careful and measured in what he's praying for God to do. And I believe that he thinks he's justified in it, which we'll get to here in verses 23 and 24. It's really interesting. One commentator says, in almost every case, if you go through and look at the imprecatory prayers in the Psalms, it's usually bracketed by, as the commentator said, Um, in almost every case, the imprecation that we find objectionable sits alongside a spirituality that we would envy. So there's devotional thoughts we probably would underline in our Bible that are immediately prior to an imprecatory prayer and immediately following an imprecatory prayer. And we go, I like those verses. Well, God says, "You, you need to like them all and you need to see how they all fit together. I think what Jesus warning in the Sermon on the Mount is and his rebuke of disciples and what Paul says uh, are all are all true. But my my first response to this question, should Christians pray these? My answer is yes. Yes, we should. There are simply too many of us, too many of them for us to kind of wave away. We are given these words by God to pray them. And elsewhere in the New Testament, you could see some examples of. Um, of how imprecatory prayers are to be done even in the New Testament. When Jesus gives, in uh, also in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the example of how we are to pray the Lord's Prayer, he has in there, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Embedded in that is the idea that his kingdom would come with judgment. So when you're praying your kingdom come on earth, it's not just this increase of You know, everything is getting better in the world. But the coming of his kingdom would be the vanquishing of the wicked. That's embedded in that prayer. And Paul, who says we should, you know, not, you know, bless and not curse. He, in a couple of places, prays an imprecatory prayer. In Galatians chapter 1, he says of anyone who would come and preach a different gospel, he says, let them be accursed. That's an imprecatory prayer. He says it twice, actually, in that chapter. He does the same thing in, I believe, 1 Corinthians. About all who would reject the gospel. He says, let a curse be upon them, he says. And then this prayer from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This is in the opening of the seals section. When the fifth seal is opened, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice. Here's their prayer O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's an imprecatory prayer. So my answer is, should we as Christians pray these kind of imprecatory prayers against the wickedness in the world? My answer is yes. The issue is how? How? To be sure there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And I think the first thing that needs to be done is to check the motivation of your hearts, which gets us to the sixth point here. David's careful moderation in verses 23 and 24. I hate them with a complete hatred, he says. I count them my enemies. And then immediately he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. I think he's, this is an appeal. He, he's moderating his, his indignation. He's moderating his imprecatory prayer here by saying... Search me and know me, which which is how he begins the psalm, right? That's how verse one is. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. And now he says, now do it again. Search me, oh, God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And I think this is a direct response to what he has just prayed. Lord, test my heart and my thoughts here. I am not calling down for your judgment and curses on the wicked. Just because they've offended me. I am calling down. Your judgment on the wicked. Because they are offending you. David gives his rationale. Says I hate my enemies with a complete hatred. Why verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you. David is angered at the wickedness that is happening and then in verse 24 and see if there be any grievous way in me am i doing this grievously am i doing this vengefully am i doing this out of my own personal motivations if so reform me correct me and instead in these imprecatory prayers lead me into the way everlasting so notice this careful moderation of these prayers Remember Romans chapter 12 that I had quoted earlier about Paul saying, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That was one of the earlier objections. Just a few verses later, Paul says this in verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I think David In his imprecatory prayers is saying, I'm not taking vengeance, Lord. You do it. That's what the imprecatory prayers are about. I think the scriptures give us license to pray against the wickedness that we see in the world. I think first we need to make sure that we check our hearts and check our motives. And second, I think we do pray that God would in fact change the hearts of those people that are perpetrating wickedness and evil. I think we would, are called to pray for them to repent. That there would be an opportunity for them to turn from their wicked ways and to be saved. That they would turn from their wicked ways and turn to Jesus their savior. Now, sometimes in some cases, this, that awakening can happen just by hearing God's word. That awakening could happen by seeing what, as, as they're executing a faithful Christian, but we could pray for their awakening to it. That they would hear and Repent. But I think it's totally appropriate to pray. The scriptures, I think, clear beginning to end with those caveats in mind. I think it's totally appropriate because that would be pl- praying, by the way, to, to bless and not curse. to pray for your enemies the not. Jesus said to you know, you've heard it said love, uh, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say love those who persecute you and pray for them. Pray for their repentance. But if they won't repent. We could call the Lord. the Lord. The Lord invites us to ask for him to, to deal with wickedness. And not just in the ultimate judgment at the end when he returns. To deal with wickedness today. And so to end, I thought it might be helpful for us to just spend some time Praying for God's enemies this morning as we close. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious mercy to us that all of us in this room Have wicked and evil hearts. But by your grace and mercy through the gospel. That all who would turn and trust in you. Could be forgiven for our wickedness. And that we could be saved. Through the work of Christ on the cross. And we thank you. And we have hearts of gratitude for. That And it is our desire that others might share the joy of that salvation, that they too may repent of their wickedness and the evil that they are committing, both in what they, in the good that they fail to do and in the evil that they do do. And so, God, we ask that, that by your spirit, even now, all over the world, that wicked people would come to you. That wicked people would repent of their sin. That wicked people would say, I have broken your law. I have wandered away from you and i stand under your judgment and that i repent god may even right now some of the most most ruthless killers who are going from door to door to kill your people would see a testimony of your faithful, of their faithfulness to you and your faithfulness to them and that they would be cut to the heart and convicted of their wrongdoing and sin may they see the boldness and the courage of christians and give you thanks and praise God, I pray that even in the more first world countries where wickedness takes a different form and a different shape of tyrannical abuse against the citizens under their care, that those elected officials that are appointed by you to carry out your laws effectively when they fail to do so and reject your teaching and reject your righteous, righteous rules. God, that you would stir in their hearts to repent. We ask that you would do that. In the mighty name of Jesus, you call us to pray for those who are governors and ruling authorities over us so that it might go well for your people. But God, we pray both for the Islamic terrorists or the tyrannical leaders in free countries. God, we pray. That if they refuse to repent. That you would. That you would break their arms. Lord God to the wickedness that is. Being perpetrated against other people. By those who should know better. And refuse to repent. We ask that you would break. The teeth in their mouths. And we pray this because we know you are the righteous ruler who is deserving of all fear and reverence and submission. We pray this because your judgment on wickedness is warranted. And we pray this, knowing that you have given us an example of it in your word. God, may you cause them to repent and to trust in your Saviour your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his mighty name that we gather together this morning to worship. And it's in his name that we can trust. And all God's people said, Amen. Friends, will you stand for our closing benediction this morning? reminder, the offering is uh, on the table. There's a couple of resources out there that are free for you to take. Um, There's some books that were mentioned in the email this past week. Reminder, next week, we're not meeting here. We're we're meeting um, at the home on Green Lake for our baptisms. Um, And so just be in prayer for that. Um, And now, brothers and sisters, uh, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.